Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Leslie Schwamm on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Emancipation's Diaspora, Race and Reconstruction in the Upper Midwest. You probably have heard of Reconstruction, but you may never have heard of Northern Reconstruction. But, in fact, the North did need to be reconstructed after the Civil War. That is because blacks there, or African Americans, were treated very poorly before the war, during the war, and after the war. Leslie's book deals with the movement of emancipated slaves into the upper Midwest, that is Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, and the way they were received. They were not received very well, alas. Uh, As she points out, African Americans had been denied civil rights before the war, and the whites in the upper Midwest had every intention of keeping them in their place, so to say, after the war. But the African Americans succeeded in setting up communities all over the upper Midwest and really fought bravely in order to see that they were given all the rights of American citizens, and eventually they were. This is a terrific book, and I hope that you read it. I enjoyed talking to Leslie today, and I think that you will enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Pretty good. Pretty good. You are in Iowa City, as I am. Is that correct? That is correct. Are you in, are you in your office right today. down the hall? No, I'm at home. Okay, all right. Yes, it is a beautiful day today. I, I, I agree with you completely. Um, it's actually quite lovely here in Iowa this time of year. We should do all re- our recruiting this time of year. I, th- I always think that's a good case. We do our recruiting in February, and Iowa's a tough sell. <laughs> yes, in the uh, two feet of snow. And yeah, the exactly, of but it's beautiful yeah. today. I should tell our listeners that we have Leslie Schwamm on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, Emancipation's Diaspora, Race and Reconstruction in the Upper Midwest. And uh, as I say, I have I told Leslie in the um, pre-interview that I have uh, read the book, and it's terrific. Uh, I learned a lot about emancipation and um, and its diaspora in the upper Midwest. And uh, if you, listeners, happen to pick up the book, you will as well. Um, let me begin, Leslie, by asking you to say a few words about yourself. Okay. Well, uh, I was born in uh, Maryland uh, in one of these uh, uh, tracks of housing that were developed for the World War II vets. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, from there, uh, made my way to University of Massachusetts for my undergraduate work Mm -hmm. and became an accidental historian. I I didn't follow a career path that uh, I would advise for anyone uh, thinking uh, to enter academia, but uh, it worked for me. I did my undergraduate work mostly in women's studies mm-hmm. and uh, you know, did some work on medieval nuns for a professor in comparative literature and then did some work on early New England women's diaries for someone in English and then finally stumbled into a women's history course and just loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, was not I was not a history major. Uh, and uh, so I finished my undergraduate degree with no idea what to do. And I worked in restaurants for a while. And <laughs> that's very hard on your back or in your feet if you've ever done that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And it uh, convinced me it was time to go to graduate school. And uh, I went to graduate school based on a rumor that Gerda Lerner, who I had heard a few years before, Gerda Lerner, the great historian of women, was going to start a graduate program in women's history. And Mm. word was it was either going to be at Boulder or at Madison. Mm -hmm. And so I moved 
to Wisconsin, become a state resident, hoping that she would choose <laughs> Madison mm -hmm. and I could afford the tuition. Mm -hmm. And she did choose Madison and she admitted me to the program and uh, began uh, a, an incredible program in women's history uh, at, at University of Wisconsin. And uh, I had the great good luck to work with great historians, great peers, and uh, found myself a historian of gender, race, and uh, the uh, 19th century in the United States. Now, I have a couple of questions. Um, one is when you were at UMass, I know a little about UMass because my wife is um, from Northampton, oh. which is right by uh, UMass, and her mother teaches there, and she teaches in Comp Lit, actually. Did you know a Professor Tomasco there? Oh. I did not. Mm -hmm. I worked with uh, Elizabeth Petroff. Yeah, I don't know her. But anyway, I thought it was just a shot in the oh. dark there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. UMass has a fantastic faculty, many fantastic faculties, I should say. Um, and so then my second uh, question concerns women's history, actually. There was a whole cohort of people that came out of Gerda Lerner's seminars at Wisconsin, oh. wasn't there? There were a bunch of you. A marvelous group of people. Kathy Brown, who did that incredible book on the origins of slavery in the Chesapeake. Leslie Regan, who did this marvelous book on uh, when abortion was a crime, looking at the dying testimony of uh, women who had had botched abortions. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, just an incredible. Nancy McLean's work, which, you know, she's now done, I think, three books. So uh, it was a, just an incredible group of people to work with. Would it be too much to say that that was, at least in that era and at that place, among others, uh, in which uh, the field of women's history was founded in the United States? I wouldn't say founded. I mean, there were uh, other professors uh, in other programs. What was new about Wisconsin was that it was actually a Ph.D. program mm -hmm. in women's history. So it was the first Ph.D. program in women's history. Mm -hmm. Are there a lot of Ph.D. programs in women's history today? Um, I don't know if I'd say there's a lot. I, I could say confidently that there's hundreds of uh, faculty teaching in the field, but in terms of specific programs, uh, you know, I, I couldn't name them. We all know that there are several very important ones, but uh, mm -hmm. I suspect there's more than we realize at this mm -hmm, point. Because mm -hmm. now it's a major subdiscipline in the field of history generally. And the and reason we have I one of the largest conferences in the world, one yeah. of the Berkshire conferences. <clears throat> Every three years, there's something like 5,000 people that attend it. Yeah, it's, it's, I say this because I suspect that many of the people that listen to this podcast are thinking about graduate school and history, and they should know exactly what's available. And I think that women's history is a particularly vibrant area, uh, and I say this with some knowledge of the difference between vibrant and not vibrant, uh, because I'm a, a Russian historian, and I would say that's not vibrant now. <laughs> um, so, so you want to kind of be in an up-and-coming or expanding field where people are very engaged. And I know that yeah. women's history, people are passionate about it, in the way they used to be about Russian and Soviet history, not so much yeah. anymore. But, that's uh, right. Yeah, so there's a, if you're listening to this podcast and thinking about women's history, I encourage you to... To, uh, to look for a program because you'll be um, working with a terrific group of people who are extraordinarily engaged in the work. I mean, tons of books come out all the time now in women's history. So it's much to your credit and Gerda Lerner's credit and everybody, uh, Linda Kerber and everybody else who was involved uh, yeah. for um, putting um, kind of moving the field forward and giving it the status that it has now. I mean, we've uncovered incredible things about the past and relevant things that we never knew before, and, and that's always exciting for historians. It is. It so, is. so kudos to you and everybody who does what you do. Thanks, uh, Absolutely. The, uh, the, how did you land, um, how, did, how did you come to write about uh, slavery? Well, uh, that path started when I was in graduate school and studying for my comprehensive exams. And at that time, there was no monograph on uh, the history of women in Reconstruction. And there was coming out one monograph on women in slavery. Mm -hmm. So I, I realized that the field was extremely thin, and uh, I was drawn to it. Mm -hmm. You know, started to become familiar with the work of Deborah White and Jacqueline Jones, and I uh, also became familiar with this big documentary editing project that was going on at the University of Maryland on the history of emancipation in the U.S., and 
realizing, you know, number one, that the sources were available, and number two, no one had bothered to ask what women's experience of emancipation and reconstruction was. It just mm-hmm. seemed, um, it drew me. The mm-hmm. topic just drew mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, was it a little bit scary to enter a field in which uh, you and a few other people were the only folks yeah. around? Yeah. Let me tell you all the ways it was yeah, scary. Yeah, please do. <laughs> well, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, there wasn't a, a, a body of secondary literature to rely on. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet I knew I would have to master all the traditional literature on emancipation and reconstruction. You can't go into the field and not know the literature. Mm -hmm. So I would have to master the traditional literature, but not have the advantage of anyone who had studied gender during Mm -hmm. this period. Uh, Again, there are, you know, a lot of sources, but no one had ever asked what we can learn about women and gender relations from them. Mm Uh, and I asked uh, Linda Gordon to me be my advisor, and you know Linda is not a historian of the South, mm-hmm. and yet she was brave enough to to take that step with me, for mm-hmm. which I will always be uh, obligated to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at the time I don't know exactly when you were in graduate school, but I imagine it was a few years ago. Uh, the uh, it, you, you know. When you choose a dissertation topic and, and you choose a field to go into, you do think about getting a job when you're done, despite what some people say. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, Marshall, I have to say no. <laughs> <laughs> that, gener- that, that generation of uh, the, that first group in the women's history program, we were not too careerist oriented. Uh-huh. We were there because we were devoted to the study of women uh-huh. and actually had little idea about the possibility uh-huh. of the job market. Yeah, yeah. So thank God for that naivete. Yeah, I guess that's right. Well, things turned in your favor, which is yeah. good, and you were part of the reason they turned in your favor. I yeah. think the force of your scholarship was such that it had to be recognized. This is not always the case, I think, but yeah, um, in that sense, right. you, you were you and that entire cohort were extraordinarily fortunate. Uh, so again, kudos to you guys. Let me uh, ask you how you came to write this particular book. Well, you know, I've asked myself that question, and I think the closest I can uh, come to answering that is, uh, is again, this uh, documentary project, documentary history project at the University of Maryland, which has put out several volumes of uh, primary sources uh, culled from the National Archives pertaining to the history of emancipation. And I found in one of those volumes um, a report, a military report, about the shipping of a few hundred former slaves during the Civil War to the Upper Midwest. And and I I wondered about that, what that was, Mm -hmm. what what the consequences were. Well, it's always Uh, good to be led into a topic by the sources themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the best best way to go. Uh, Because it's all too often the case that I think to myself, geez, I'd like to know about this. Oh, there are no sources about it. And I spent six months on it. Um, So then... Uh, as, as I said in the pre-interview, uh, and for those of you who will read the book, Leslie has visited uh, uh, about uh, uh, 10,000 archives in the Upper Midwest. And what is the Upper Midwest exactly? Well, that varies widely, actually. Um, I, I use uh, the phrase to refer to the northernmost reaches of the Mississippi Valley, in this instance, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Uh, could you give us a short course, um, for those of us who don't know, on, um, first of all, emancipation itself, and second, on the disposition of African Americans in the upper Midwest before and during the Civil War? So let's start with emancipation. That is, how did it come about? What were the rules that were followed and that sort of thing? Right. Well, one of the, you know dominant misperceptions I think most Americans have about emancipation is that it was a very simple thing that happened when uh, Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. I think people without the benefit of good history teachers uh, come away with a knowledge of the Civil War that says as of that date slavery was ended in the United States. And mm-hmm. Uh, African Americans were freed, and of course, emancipation was never so simple. Um, during the Civil War, it begins. It's a process that begins with uh, enslaved people themselves who decide before 
the North had made this decision. Enslaved people decide this is a war about slavery and that the war will see an end to slavery, and so they act and they flee their owners and they make their way to Union camps. Uh, and the Union officers in these camps were not at all prepared to deal with these people, mm-hmm. had no idea what to do with them, and had only the guidance of their president who said, leave slavery intact because I can't afford to alienate the border states that had not yet seceded, nor can I afford to alienate any potential Unionist sentiment in the South. So Lincoln said, leave it be. Meanwhile, slaves are running into these camps, uh, seeking their freedom, seeking protection from being uh, recaptured by their masters. And uh, it's basically in the battlefield, in these camps, where uh, policies began to be developed about what to do with these runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a process that, that goes over the course of the war, and it you know begins with a army officer here, an army officer there, coming up with a decision and then talking with the Secretary of War and lots of uh, military correspondence. But basically, the, the framework moves from what were called a series of confiscation acts that made it legal for uh, the Union military to confiscate the enemy's property during the war. And, of course, that property included enslaved people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had the first confiscation act that makes makes it legal to do that if an enslaved person was being used directly in the war effort. And then the second confiscation act actually extends to the slaves of all disloyal slave owners, regardless of whether they were involved in the war effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Emancipation Proclamation, which broadens to uh, most of the Confederacy, not all of it, but most of it. And then finally, we have uh, the enlistment of black soldiers, and it is actually enlistment which liberates enslaved people in the border states because mm-hmm. they continue to protect those border states from the Emancipation mm-hmm. Proclamation. Mm-hmm. I see. So then let's turn to the um, second question, and that had to do with African Americans in um, Iowa and Wisconsin and Minnesota and um, territories adjacent to them before and during the Civil War. They were there, weren't they? They were there. I mean, they, they were in this region in small numbers, and they were in the region primarily as enslaved people or uh, people held in uh, dubious indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a migration, a very small migration of free African Americans to the upper Midwest, but most of the people who came, came basically uh, either through Illinois or came with slave owners who mm-hmm. relocated to this region. Mm-hmm. Um, those who came through Illinois did so because slavery remained legal in Illinois uh, through the 1840s and uh Illinois, therefore, becomes kind of a dispersal point for uh, the slave population in the region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I learned from your book, and I can't imagine it didn't occur to me before, but it didn't, uh, was that, well, let me put it a little bit differently, that commanders in the uh, U.S. armed forces could own slaves. Yeah. Now, when they were posted in non-slave states, what, what happened to their slaves? Well, they took them with them. Right. Not only not only could they take their slaves into so-called free territory, yeah, free territory, the U.S. Army actually gave them special funds to either hire the services of a slave or purchase a slave mm-hmm. because it was regarded as one of the ways that the Army could really make up for the fact that officers were being posted in very remote regions mm-hmm. uh, where... Uh, you know, work was hard. Survival mm-hmm. was hard. You now, know. Now, did did this um, did this uh, cause a certain amount of rancor among abolitionists in the areas? If there were any, I mean, did they say, no. you know, we don't want these slaves among? No. They didn't want to bother by this. Yeah. Okay. That's a good direct it answer. Didn't, which is very, you know, very interesting. Um, I think we labor under the the mistaken notion that you know abolitionists were ever at the ready to protest. Uh, the appearance of any uh, slave in free territory, and, and that that wasn't the case. Um, did the slaves who were owned by these military officers posted in the north, let's call it the north just generally, did they ever um, 
sue for their freedom, saying, look, I'm on free soil and I should Indeed, and the most famous instance of that is, of course, the Dred Scott mm-hmm. case, um, which the Supreme Court ruled upon in 1857 that despite Dred Scott's uh, a clear demonstration that he had lived in free territory, that he was not only to be continued to be held as a slave, but in fact, as the court ruled, uh, Congress had no right to limit slavery, and people of African descent had no rights the white man was bound to respect. Mm -hmm, So that's the most famous lawsuit that we know about, but in fact, there were dozens of others. Uh, And most of these came out of um, instances where these slaves uh, were taken to Missouri, and Missouri had a had a quirky law that allowed um, slaves who wished to claim that they had been illegally held as slaves, allowed them to bring suits to court, and actually provided them with a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they so, ever win? Yes, they did indeed. Mm-hmm. They did sometimes win, mm-hmm. um, which is amazing. Yeah, and well, is amazing. documents themselves are amazing. Yeah. And it's it, important, it's very important that historians realize that, you know, Dred Scott was not alone yeah. in making this suit. There was a whole community effort of people to gain their freedom. Yeah, because you can see how this is a thorny legal issue. A little bit like, I mean, sort of the analogy that comes to mind today is gay marriage. Uh, you know, because on the one hand, we want people to be married. That's a good thing for us. On the other hand, there are certain social conservatives that don't like it. And then there's the states. They have a kind of hierarchy of courts, and there's the federal mm-hmm. court. So the status of this is really sort of unclear. Similarly, in, in, in this era, you have these officers who work for the United States government, and they're taking their slaves from southern states to northern slaves. To so the states say that slavery is illegal, but nonetheless, we need the army, and we, so we have to treat yep. them specially. And yep. so what do you do exactly? I mean, it's really... It's really something to think about a lot, so it doesn't surprise me at all that, just as in the case of gay marriage, lots of legislation about it going forward, huge amount, in fact, um, yeah. that there would be lots of legislation and, and uh, there would be a lot of uh, um, uh, litigiousness yeah. ab- about this particular topic, because it, yeah. it, it really isn't clear. And so, the, so I was, again, with my wife, I was reading the book, and I'm like, did you realize that when officers went north, they could take their slaves with them? And she's like, I, no, I didn't realize that, but there must be a lot of... Talk about that because it's so it's a, it's kind of such a strange thing to think about in that way. So uh, yeah, no, I think that uh, there's a good monograph waiting in the wings there if it hasn't already been written about. Well, actually, if I can make a plug for a Please colleague's do. book uh, in the College of Law, uh, Professor Lee Vanderveld has just published uh, her book Mrs. Dred Scott with Oxford University mm-hmm. Press that really does uh, reveal much more deeply than I go into in my project um, how this worked. Mm-hmm. So I, that's a strong recommendation from me to mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. out there who mm-hmm. are interested in this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll actually try to get that book and interview her. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea because yeah. I'm really interested in this question because it, it's in moments like this where you have real uh, d- dilemmas that uh, there's often the most kind of interesting and reflective discussion by the participants. And this really yeah. is kind of a dilemma. What do you do with somebody that seems to be properly enslaved in a place where slavery is illegal. That's, that's a tough thing to think about. Yeah. So, so then um, when uh, the emancipated slaves or pre-emancipated slaves started to move or be moved north into these areas, how, how were they received generally? What was the um, attitude of the majority white population toward African Americans at this time? Well, it was it was very interestingly conflicted. Um, first of all, we have to uh, think about how they made their way to the Midwest. So many simply fled on foot or on horseback or by wagon across the Missouri border or aboard a steamship illegally um, and uh, just tried to make their way to freedom. Uh, others were actually gathered together by the army and uh, relocated by the dozens, if not the hundreds, by uh, uh, government ships mm-hmm. uh, up to the uh, various uh, uh, riverport towns. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were others, other enslaved people, who uh, met up with white Union soldiers who thought, uh, I could use a farmhand. I could use a servant. Mm-hmm. And they arranged to send these folks up to their community. So, in other words, you have some people arriving by ones and twos and other people arriving by thirties and forties and a hundred. And that certainly, uh, 
would change the circumstances uh, under which uh, whites responded to them. But um, for the most part, I'd say there's a great deal of hostility. There's a great deal of anxiety on the part of white Midwesterners about what it would mean that former slaves were coming into their midst. Because most white Midwesterners viewed uh, the, the Midwest frontier as a white frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, and they viewed their uh, citizenship in uh, the region as predicated on the fact that um, African Americans were not present, they mm-hmm. believed, and if they were present, they were subordinate to mm-hmm. white residents. So the sudden appearance of these free African Americans, now freed, was uh, very disruptive to the way they viewed their daily lives and the world around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they feared that the appearance of former slaves meant that their own privileges and rights were now somehow under siege. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think it's a, it's a very interesting and relevant point. I know I'm, I'm from the Midwest myself. I'm from Kansas originally. And um, Kansans tend to be proud of uh, what they think of as our abolitionist heritage. And I always remind my Kansas buddies that all those people were from Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so it wasn't well, as if because they were very, they were totally receptive to these ideas. They were what we would call um, racists, uh, and that, that's an, if there's a value-neutral way to say that. I don't really know. They, they, it, it has a lot of baggage now, but they didn't believe that the races should mix. Is that too strong? No, it's not too strong, and I don't think it's historically erroneous to talk about racism. I mean, racism, as we understand today, is not simply personal attitudes, but it's attitudes that are reinforced by law and Mm -hmm. practice and institutions, and that certainly was the case uh, in the 19th century Midwest. Yeah, like, you know, there's there's a lot of nostalgia about the various units from the North that fought in the Civil War, but, you know, one of the things I came away from your book thinking is that um, fighting in the Civil War really doesn't tell you a lot about somebody's attitude toward African Americans. It does not, no. Yeah, it doesn't tell you anything, in fact. No, we, we do have labor under this misperception that the North fought to end slavery and free the slaves and bring racial equality to the United States, and that's simply, simply not the case. Yeah. It is the case that for many white soldiers, their first encounter with enslaved people in the South did have an impact on them. That's true. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there were many white soldiers who looked at enslaved people and said, hey, it's just like the minstrel show we saw Mm -hmm. in Davenport last year. Right, right, Um, exactly. So uh, was that what what place in the American legal framework in these states and these territories did African-Americans have? They weren't enfranchised, were they? Males weren't enfranchised? Were no, they, they, they had... Sit on juries, that kind of... No, they, they had very, very few of what we would consider to be citizenship rights. They couldn't sit on juries. They couldn't vote. Um, they, uh, in some instances, for example, in Iowa, there was a, actually a state law that prevented the in-migration of African Americans into the state. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some states had laws against miscegenation. Iowa was not one of those, surprisingly, although many white residents believed there was a law and thought it appropriate to attack African Americans who tried to marry white spouses, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, no, there was no access to public schools, there was not uh, access to uh, public accommodations, um, so everything that we tend to associate with the history of Southern segregation actually uh, quite resembled practices in the upper Midwest. Yeah, I think that this is another case where our contemporary view of things really distorts what was actually going on. And again, I get this from reading your book. And also last week I interviewed a fellow named Charles Postal who wrote a book about populism at the turn of the century. And the populists um, were were kind of big tent organization, but one of the things he points out in the book is that they were uh, really hardcore segregationists, many of them. And they felt that that was progressive, that that this was was something that we needed to go further on. And this would improve everybody's lives if the races were kept separate. Um, and, And we can't put segregation and progressive in the same sentence and understand that sentence. 
It, it yeah. make, but to them, yeah. I mean, he's got it in the documents. There it is. These are smart people. They're not, you know, they, they aren't Nazis or anything. And, and they're saying these things. So it, 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 uh, it is, it, it is something that it takes, a, it takes a little while to wrap your mind around, um, okay. how this can be the case. So then when these, uh, um, uh, liberated slaves, let's call them that, were moved um, north, uh, what, what sort of um, uh, steps were taken to set them up? Well, this is, of course, part of the problem is that they had no resources. Some of them were, in, uh, were ill, uh, had been wounded during the war, um, certainly were malnourished. Um, so they, they literally came with nothing and uh some were met by uh whites gathered in the in the uh river towns who were eager to hire them because there was of course a labor shortage in the midwest given the high rate of enlistment a lot of uh, mm-hmm. uh white workers had gone to fight in the war so there was you know a, a need for labor and whites were were glad to hire african americans as workers mm-hmm. at very low rates um, but other than that, uh, most African Americans were on their own. There were a few circumstances where there was help for them, and these were instances where congregations or ministers had become involved in the relocation process. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, in the community of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, uh, there was a minister who had worked in a camp for these fugitive slaves, in uh, Illinois, in Cairo, Illinois, and then became involved in relocating quite a large number of them up to Fond du Lac, and he helped find them housing and jobs. But, you know, the first night he's he's gathered together these people in Fond du Lac, uh, his house is stoned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were good-hearted people and bad-hearted people <laughs> mm-hmm. who uh, met these new migrants out of the south. Mm-hmm. So again, it, it depended on on their experience of migration. Those who made their own way uh, would just simply go farm to farm, begging for work, uh, and were lucky when they found some work. Um, and others were simply, you know, ostracized. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have we're- some some records of of ill contraband or former slaves uh, just being allowed to die by the side of the road because mm-hmm. no one wanted to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Well, was it the case that some of them were forcibly uh, um, um, ejected from communities? Or was there a kind of a vigilantism or did the authorities get involved to keep them from coming to places like Keokuk? Or well, Anderson, I guess? Like a classic story comes uh, from St. Paul uh, in uh, the middle of the war when a, a boatload of uh, former slaves who had been requested by Union authorities, this is after the, the Dakota uprising, so Union officers request black laborers be sent up to St. Paul to help in uh, the expedition that's going to take revenge on the Dakota. So these people arrive, it's not just male laborers, it's their wives and their children and their grandparents, and the Irish dockhands uh, refused to allow them to disembark from the boat uh, out of fear of uh, competition, I think, for jobs. So mm-hmm. um, so there were efforts to, to keep them from disembarking, to keep them from arriving. And, of course, there's, a, in many instances, a considerable uh, popular outrage. Uh, for example, here where, uh, Marshall, you and I talk in Johnson County, there was a, a local meeting of white men to insist that they would not allow former slaves to be admitted to Johnson County. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was a kind of a rough welcome or no welcome at all. Indeed. Um, that's a bit of a digression, but it, it, um, it relates to something from my childhood, and I've always wanted to ask somebody that knows everything about these things about it. There was a... Um, and it involves migration to the north, in this case to Kansas, but also to a place I think called Michikanik. But the place I knew about when I was growing up was called Nicodemus. Oh, of course. And, and th- this was, we were all told, it was kind of lore uh, in this area, that this was a place that had been settled by ex-slaves uh, as a community, that they had been given or purchased some land, and they had set up this little bitty town, which still exists, by the way. It's almost yep. empty of people. But And I think, is, is Michikanik a similar sort of place in Iowa? This is a mining town? Yeah. Yeah, it's 
not the same, really. Okay. I mean, the, the migration to Nicodemus was part of the exoduster movement that the historian Nell Painter first wrote about, uh-huh. where African Americans who were really sick and tired of their treatment in uh, the plantation south, in essence, fled uh-huh. south and made their way west. Um, very different the settlements that occurred in uh, south central Iowa in the mining, uh, in the coal mining regions, because mm-hmm. uh, those begin when white labor recruiters go east to Virginia and encourage uh, African Americans to take the train west and come and work uh, in these labor camps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, they're drawn to, to a particular industry um, where there already was a history of using black workers as strike breakers. Um, so it wasn't that unusual to have a white labor recruiter appear in, in a black community. Um, uh, but the, the community in uh, Muchikinik and then later in Buxton, Iowa, were uh, I- incredibly unique settlements of African Americans and whites uh, that became uh, really what what African Americans at the time described as a kind of heaven for them Mm -hmm. Uh, because in some ways they were apart from the uh, segregationist practices uh, in the rest of the state in the rest of the region. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is the case of Nicodemus, uh, uh, is it unique? Are there other examples of places like this that were settled? There are other examples, um, not as well researched as Nicodemus, and not as large as. Nicodemus. I see. Okay, you yeah, know that's good yeah. to know. Sorry about that digression. You have a chapter about um, migration and the black military experience. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because a lot of these, uh, a lot of the the the, uh, the African Americans um, were invited to or joined up with the Union forces. Yeah, most people are quite surprised to learn that Iowa hosted the organization of a black regiment during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And what I found very interesting about that regiment is that it consisted of uh, both slaves who were enlisted in Missouri and brought to Iowa to be organized into the regiment, but also uh, a great many men who had migrated during the war, who had left slavery, made their way to the upper Midwest, agreed to return to the South, Hmm. risk their lives in order to uh, help destroy slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting to me about that is that many of the longer-term black residents of the region did not enlist. Mm-hmm. So mm, it suggests something a little different about the motives for black enlistment than many historians have have offered. And, and what would those motives be? What is the traditional line and what's your line? Of course, uh, most historians say that African Americans saw enlistment as an opportunity to advance civil rights, to to demand that their manhood be recognized, uh, and of course to hope that slavery be destroyed. Well, in the case of the Upper Midwest, most of the people who were willing to enter that fight were had just immediately left slavery, mm-hmm. which suggests to me that those African Americans who were already living in the region either felt like it was too big a risk for them to leave their families behind or were perhaps still unconvinced that uh, black enlistment could make a difference. It's it's an interesting, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is one of those things that there's not sources where uh, the, the longer-term black residents wrote out their reasons for not enlisting. Mm-hmm. But it's a marked absence in, in the enlistment. But nonetheless, the story of those who did serve is, is really quite fascinating, and I think it's, a, it's an incredible tribute to their you know, willingness to risk all to bring an end to slavery. Mm-hmm. And how did they fare, those that signed up? Quite terribly. (laughs) I hate to say this, but uh, it's very typical in the Western theater of war that African-American soldiers were used as occupying forces and to do fatigue labor. That is the hard physical labor that white soldiers themselves described as slave labor Mm -hmm. and and preferred not to do. Um, And when, when these black troops became occupying forces, as I was... Regiment, the 60th U.S. Colored Infantry became, 
Um, they were located in very unhealthy places, uh, in first in St. Louis and then in Helena, Arkansas. And Helena was just a terrible kind of a death pit. It flooded mm-hmm. horribly and there was inadequate shelter and when the men were vaccinated for smallpox, they were given impure vaccinations. Mm-hmm. They became very ill. Uh, and in fact, in many instances, their wives came down from Iowa mm-hmm. to nurse them. Mm-hmm. Again, risking all, those yeah. women risking all by returning to the South where they could easily be recaptured, sold into slavery, killed. Mm-hmm. So I take it that the mortality rate was high. It was extremely high. Mm-hmm. Now, it those was, people that survived, did they make it back to Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin? Um, a great many did, and, and it's, it's part of the interesting history of this regiment. Um, historians have mistakenly looked at these men's birthplaces to try and figure out where they enlisted from, but because so many were former slaves who had run away during the war and then enlisted in Iowa, um, it, it's a little it's challenging to, to reconstruct who actually was in this regiment mm-hmm. and where they were after the war. So what I did is I went and looked at the pension records that these mm-hmm. uh, war veterans uh, had when they applied for a pension or when their widows applied for a pension and was able to track for many of them where they were after the war and what they did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they and you know, many of them were injured. Many of them were sick. Many of them couldn't do anything for mm-hmm. a year or two after the war, and even after that, were were significantly disabled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, those uh, I was going to say families, but that leads me to an interesting question: Were they um, brought north, or did they travel north as families, or attempt to reconstruct their families if they had been taken apart under slavery? Well, we both actually. The a very interesting fact about slave flight during the Civil War is that it was really the first time since the Revolutionary War that enslaved people could flee in families. So the patterns of slave flight in between the American Revolution and the Civil War were patterns where it was predominantly men who escaped for freedom, and mm-hmm. that when women fled, it was uh, short-term truancy. They, mm-hmm. they, they were more likely to ultimately return, and this has to do with their primary responsibility for child raising. Mm-hmm. Um, so the war changes that situation because, of course, the Union troops are nearby, and so the flight itself is not so long, um, not so uh, impossible to imagine ending in success. So we have lots of families escaping together. Hmm. But on the other hand, war is war, and it creates chaos, and it separates families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we, at the same time, also have uh, records of people advertising in northern newspapers and southern newspapers after the war. Have you seen my sister Jane? Mm-hmm. The last time I saw her was during the war. Please contact this congregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there were families who escaped together, and there were families who were separated. So once they made it to the upper Midwest um, did, did, and, and were badly received, uh, yes. then uh, what, what sort of occupations did they set themselves up in, and uh, where did they live? Were there ghettos for them, or did they did they yeah. lodge with their, um, I was going to say, new masters? Did they lodge with the yeah. people that had hired them? <laughs> Well, uh, again, remembering first and foremost that this is an impoverished population. Um, and they faced, of course, a, a labor market that was very rigidly segregated. Um, so the vast majority of these former slaves found work as farmhands. Men and women uh, did day labor on other people's farms. Uh, for women, uh, another very prominent occupation was as a domestic servant. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are poorly paid occupations. They're, they're occupations that are largely day hire, which means you, you never know if you're going to have work next week. Um, and with the, this kind of minimal income, of course, uh, where people could, affo- could afford to live was either in housing provided by their employer uh, or many of them stayed in the Mississippi River towns where they first arrived. So mm-hmm. we have the largest black communities at this time uh, in Keokuk and Burlington and Muscatine, Davenport, um, up to La Crosse, up to the Twin Cities, and then a few scattered communities inland 
uh, in Wisconsin, places like Fond du Lac, um, and uh, in Iowa, beginning along the coal mining areas. Uh, Des Moines was a very, very small black community at this time. It really would be later in the 19th century when Des Moines becomes a significant black community. Keokuk was the largest black community mm-hmm. north of uh, St. Louis. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um, l- let me ask this. D- did, did they actually manage to um, establish themselves as a community in these places? Well, they did. They did. Uh, and this this is uh, I think one of the hallmarks of uh, both the migration that occurred before the war and then the migration that occurred during the war is the immediate work uh, free and formerly enslaved blacks undertook to, to create a home for themselves. Mm-hmm. And one of the very first uh, kinds of institutions that they turned to building were churches. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in particular was uh, very supportive of these endeavors, uh, paid for ministers to to come into the region and move congregation to congregation and help them organize, help them uh, begin fundraising drives to be able to build an actual edifice Mm -hmm. and to be able to pay for a permanent minister's salary. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's really uh, quite a legacy of church building Mm-hmm. Uh, during this period, and uh, believe me, there are many uh, Iowa communities today that are surprised to learn that there were black churches <laughs> mm-hmm. located in their midst of yeah. once upon a time. Yeah. Yes. Now, did the other denominations in the area, the other Christian denominations, did they help the uh, African migrants, and did they help them establish churches? Were churches segregated at this time? Uh, churches were segregated at this time. Um, uh, the other congregation that was the most active would have been uh, the Baptists. The white Baptists uh, sort of took charge of black congregations and organized, helped them to organize into separate congregations, always with white ministers or white elders at their head. Um, the local congregationalist communities uh, sometimes offered charity or relief uh, for impoverished blacks, but kept their congregation segregated, uh, at least in the few instances where we know uh, blacks applied for membership and were rejected. Mm-hmm, I see. So after the war, were they granted uh, sort of standard civil rights? Uh, you mean in generally, or do you mean in Congress? In, in the upper, uh, in the upper Midwest, I mean. Well, it was a long struggle. I mean, they weren't just given civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this notion; historians do that uh, Reconstruction was a was an event, a development that happened in the South, and we tend to overlook the fact that uh, at the end of the war, uh, again, uh, African Americans were not really citizens in the North, in the Northern states, that there were so many laws on the books that restricted their civil rights. So after the war, we have a a very significant civil rights movement organized by African American women and men uh, to gain the right to vote, the right to sit on juries, the right to travel uh, in on trains and steamboats and equal accommodations, the right to attend school. These were all long and and difficult struggles that oftentimes ended up in the courts um, and required a great deal of uh, organizing efforts and resources that, you know, already impoverished people had, you know, so little at hand, and yet they managed to pay for lawyers to represent their interests Mm -hmm. in court and... uh, Mm-hmm. fight for the right to educate their children. So mm-hmm. it was, it was an incredibly intense struggle and a long struggle. Um, and, you know, it's just we seem to have forgotten this yeah. in, in our memory of Reconstruction. That In mm-hmm. fact, African Americans were voting in the South before they could vote in the North. Mm-hmm. After the war, many northern states turned down efforts to enfranchise their black residents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That indeed the 14th and the 15th Amendment had uh, a great impact on the North, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not yeah, only no, on the South. No, that, that's fascinating, and the idea of Northern Reconstruction is also um, fascinating. I want to talk about it just a little bit more. Um, can we say anything about the geography of success or failure of these programs? Um, I'm thinking of 
I don't know why I have this uh, notion that in Indiana it didn't really succeed very well. That is giving um, African Americans civil rights, but in other states like Iowa, uh, it it uh, it was more successful. Can you help me understand that? Is well, that true, uh, or am I? I, I can I can venture uh, a, a supposition. Uh, and that is that slavery remained legal in Indiana and in Illinois longer than it did in the upper Midwest, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Um, and I suspect that that um, permitted uh, a, a more rigid racial caste system to last longer in that region than in the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, you know that. You know, this is still, you know, this understanding of the history of, of race in the North is actually still in its infancy. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, that leads uh, well into my next question. What, um, it, this is a very broad question, uh, probably unanswerable. What happened to these communities once they were set up, these communities within communities? Because um, I suspect they were mostly urban by 19th century standards. Uh, but what was, uh, what was their fate? I wouldn't. I wouldn't describe them predominantly as urban, okay. with, with the exception of perhaps Keokuk and later Des Moines. These are mostly what we would call river towns. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we see emerging uh, is not only the creation of edifices like churches and separate black schools, but we also see uh, the development of conflicts within black communities as people try to decide. Um, how best to pursue civil rights as they try to decide um, what's the best way to represent themselves to the white public. Um, And we see some struggle between African-American men and African-American women over issues of uh, authority and um, control and power. Um, So we, we actually see as these communities develop that they become complicated communities, mm-hmm. uh, not simply a singular unified black community, but places where there were disagreements and contests and, and conflicts. Mm-hmm. Did they, do, do, let, me, let me put it this way, do they survive to our day or, or, or did they kind of blink out at a certain moment? Well, uh, with uh, the two world wars, World War One and World War Two, there's a great deal of migration out of the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, into uh, away from the smaller rural communities, away from the river towns, to those largest urban centers that offered better employment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the best example I can give you is a small town in southwestern Iowa, Clorinda, which had hundreds of black residents at the end of the Civil War, much to the white residents' surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a quite a vibrant community that is gone now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they moved out later in the 20th century. Right. Yes, right. I see. Yeah. yeah. So um, as they passed and moved, um, we, we forgot about these things. You have an interesting chapter about uh, commemoration and the, the memory of these things. Um, do, do we in the upper Midwest, we're sitting here in the upper Midwest, uh, do, do we make any effort to remember uh, these communities today? Or, or, or have we, ex- your, your book being the great exception, have we more or less forgotten about them? Uh, well, I would say for the most part we have forgotten because of the way that uh, especially the white community prefers to remember the Civil War struggle. We prefer to think about whites as, as abolitionists. We prefer to think about Union troops hoping to end slavery and bring equal rights. And when you presume a kind of racial egalitarianism, uh, then y- you don't bother to pay attention to struggles for racial equality. Mm-hmm. You don't bother to pay attention to uh, the history of slavery in the North. So mm-hmm. that that more nostalgic uh, uh, effort to, to create the North as a place free of slavery and free of racism has served to really obscure um, the memory of that past. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was doing some of my research in newspapers and uh, finding these incredible uh, obituaries in the early 20th century for former slaves that laid out in tremendous detail the history of their enslavement, who had Mm -hmm. owned them, 
whom they had been sold to. And, mm-hmm. and it was so striking to me that uh, black communities in the upper Midwest were sustaining this memory of what had happened to them, mm-hmm. whereas the white residents around them uh, really uh, refused to participate in that recollection, mm-hmm. in that memory. Let me ask you a rather specific question. I know that um, there's a cemetery here in Iowa City, and I like to wander through it. I like cemeteries. Um, yeah. I don't know what that says about me, um, but <laughs> the, the, you look at a lot of there are a lot of graves there. There are many, many graves. It's been inhabited for a long time, but most of them have sort of German and Czech names. That yeah. the, the Germans and Czechs came came after, as I understand, at least in large numbers. Yes. Uh, well, after the Civil War, did did. Did did that have any impact on our um, memory of slavery at all? Because I think of a, of Iowa as a place that was settled by Germans and Czechs. I, 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 that's kind of where my history of Iowa starts. And, yeah. And, and uh, that's a mistake, obviously. But did that have any impact on our memory of these things? Well, it it, it probably has an impact in 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 the move towards. Um, a more melded white identity down the road and an investment in a white identity um, that makes it risky uh, to, to pay attention to the other mm-hmm. in our history. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I want to point out that that amnesia occurred largely in the white community and mm-hmm. that African-Americans in the up Midwest um, had for many, many decades regular annual holidays and celebrations that recalled slavery and recalled their role in slavery's destruction Mm -hmm. um, and uh, really drew hundreds and sometimes thousands of celebrants from across the region. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a fascinating history in and of itself. Uh, This has come up, the the idea of um, commemoration has come up recently in the news here in Iowa, and I've just glancingly heard about it. And it has something to do with, I guess, the state capitol was in part built by slaves. Is this right? Or uh, do you know what I'm talking about? You're, you're thinking about, the, I think, the building of the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. No, well, maybe I am. Yeah, I, I guess I, I thought it had some Iowa connection, though. Well, slave, I mean, certainly, you know, slaves participated in the construction of major buildings across the upper yeah. Midwest because they were slave laborers. Yeah. I mean, it was slaves who opened up that tough prairie soil to yeah. – uh, uh, to agriculture. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, no, we, I'm, obviously my, I'm yeah. confused because yeah. I have two young children at home. Confusion is my normal state. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Leslie, I, I just want to say we've taken up a lot of your time and we really appreciate it. It's an absolutely fascinating book and I hope that it um, reaches a wide readership. Let me close uh, our interview uh, with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a lot of different small things, but one of the more sort of uh, bigger projects that I'm grappling with is is a more synthetic study of Northern Reconstruction that moves beyond, you know, the regional limitations of the book I've just published and, you know, try to do for Northern Reconstruction in a far humbler way what uh, Foner did for Southern Reconstruction Mm -hmm. to, to really make it possible for... Uh, instructors and scholars to incorporate what's happened in the North in the post-bellum period into their understanding of the Civil War era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a fantastic project in the sense that this is not only something that has been largely forgotten, it also is something that really doesn't want to be remembered. Yep. <laughs> Thank that, you for that. Yeah, yes. that, yes. that is, that is, there's going to be some uh, tough love coming yeah. from Leslie Schwamm toward <laughs> many people in the upper Midwest when we actually, the dirty laundry all comes out. I love tough love myself, but then again, I think all historians do. Um, I mean, I love sort of figuring out that the things that I, I thought were right are wrong. But maybe, yeah. maybe that's peculiar to us. So anyway, Leslie, I just want to say thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. And I look forward to seeing you around the department, okay? Okay. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Leslie Schwamm about her new book, Emancipation's Diaspora, Race and Reconstruction in the Upper Midwest. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.